You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and future through the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. In 2013, J19, the Journal of 19th Century Americanists, was launched by founding editors Chris Castiglia of Pennsylvania State University and Dana Nelson of Vanderbilt University. Published twice annually, the official publication of the C19 organization is dedicated to innovative research on and analysis of the long 19th century. In this episode, we bring you an exclusive interview with the new co-editors of the journal, Elizabeth Betsy Duquette of Gettysburg College and Stacey Margolis of the University of Utah, who recently began their five-year term. I am Christine Zainyao, chair of the C19 Podcast Subcommittee and Shirk Postdoctoral Fellow at UBC, working together on this episode with Mark Sussman, adjunct assistant professor at Hunter College, and Matthew Teutsch, instructor of English at Auburn University. We are excited to bring you this sneak peek into the workings of a leading academic journal and Betsy and Stacy's vision for the next five years of J19. Hello, this is the C19 Podcast. My name is Mark Sussman, and I am here with Betsy Duquette and Stacy Margolis. Um, do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Sure. Hi, I'm Betsy. <laughs> I'm Stacy Margolis. I'm professor of English at the University of Utah and author of Fictions of Mass Democracy in 19th Century America. It's great. You should read it. <laughs> <laughs> And, and Betsy, where are you located? I am at Gettysburg College, and I am the author, not quite as recently as Stacy, of Loyal Subjects, Bonds of Nation, Race, and Allegiance in 19th Century America. Great. So uh, we're talking to you guys today because you are the incoming editors of J19, the uh, journal associated with C19. So we wanted to kind of uh, come in, have you guys talk about you know, your approach and how you guys are thinking about what will be your five-year editorial reign and just some issues relating to the journal. Sounds, Sounds great. Good. Sounds great. All right. So I'm just going to start with some questions. So Betsy, uh, at a panel at the most recent ALA, you, about journal editing, you kind of talked a little bit about some guys' features that you and Stacy had in the works. Can you tell our listeners about this? Sure. One of the new features we have... Um, we are adding to the journal will be a letter section. And what we're looking for are responses to primarily to articles that have appeared that have appeared in the journal previously, but I suppose it could also be to other things that are broader in the field. That's a good idea, actually. Um, and we actually have our first letter, so we will have a letter in the first issue that we publish in 6-1, but we are thinking of this in terms of establishing a conversation, a dialogue across issues and across space and time, so that... Oh, I was going to say, we, we'd heard from just a few people, but I suspect that it's um, true of many people that they wanted some kind of venue for having their work responded to more formally and being able to respond to other people's work more formally. And we thought, well, we're like in a perfect position to try and make that happen. It takes a long time to generate a full, t 
full-scale scholarly, scholarly response. Um, but a letter, something of around a thousand words, that can happen much more quickly. And so we're hoping to spark debate and to help to use the journal as um, obviously a mediated, but a site for community. <laughs> across 19th century Americanists. Right, and it's not, we're not like soliciting responses in a, the way that right. other journals have done. And it's, that is great. I'm not criticizing that, but this will be, um, you know, responses that are just coming kind of naturally from the field <laughs> that we're not asking for, that we hope that without even asking for, we will just um, receive. And since we already have received one before, anyone even knew we were asking for them, we think we're right. <laughs> Do you think that that is, I mean, I guess I want to ask, it sounds like this is, in addition to community, it sounds like you guys are also kind of thinking about the speed of scholarly discourse and the speed of scholarly, um, you know, I guess, thought interaction, etc. Is that something that you see as being uh, an important aspect of what you want J19 to be? Speedier? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, it was, it was supposed right. to be the letter. The idea of the letters was that it could happen quickly because it, you wouldn't have to write, you know, a 3,000 or 9,000 word, well, you know, researched and footnoted response. You could write a letter saying, I really love this. I wondered about that. And so that could happen very quickly. And it could put people in touch with each other who wouldn't otherwise be in touch with each other. It takes a lot of chutzpah, you know, to just decide, I love that essay. I'm going to write this person an email and, and try to start, you know, a discussion. So we are more like facilitators of that now. We also are thinking about what it means to engage with a journal. Because so very often, I mean, my experience anyway, is that now that many journals are online, I no longer subscribe to them. I no longer read them when they come out. And, um, you know, so you sample into a journal for the scholarship you want. And we wanted to think about what a journal might be able to do that would be different from that, particularly given increasing financial constraints on our larger community. That's true. And that's actually what the we're, we're keeping. We love and we're keeping pleasure reading for exactly that reason. It's it's a fantastic uh, attractor of, of readers who wouldn't, who aren't searching the journal for a specific topic, but who just want to kind of see what are people reading? What are people in my field thinking about? What do people like? Um, and I love that aspect of J19. And we do a lot of different kinds of things as scholars, and we think that the journal should capture and reflect that. I mean, given that you're reading all these texts, you sort of have a, you probably have a sense of the field that no one else has because you are reading so much new scholarship, some of which will be published in J19, some of which, which will be published elsewhere, and some of which uh, you know may not be ready for publication. So where do you guys see the field going, given what you've seen so far? What do you think the next few years well, of 19th century literary Well, you're absolutely right to say that we have this amazing vantage point on the field. That's been the most yeah. fun thing about taking on this job is getting to read everything that's coming in and just sort of getting a snapshot of what people are interested in talking about. Are there patterns? And But, you know, in the end, I'm not sure. Betsy might have a different answer, but I'm not sure this is predictive. You know, I mean, I... I don't know yeah. if the field has a direction. It seems like there are lots of different areas that uh, could be 
maybe more central going forward. Um, you know, the kind of uh, identity scholarship stuff has been big for like 20 years and it's still big. I imagine it will be big going forward. Um, we do get some media study stuff, which is new, but that mm-hmm. is not as a big deal in the 19th century for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still, you know, people are still doing it, but it's, uh, it's not quite the thing it is in the 20th century. And then, um, yeah, Betsy, what do you think? Well, I would say that one of the things that I've noticed or that we, we've noticed is that um, there's an awful, the scholars seem to be turning a great deal to understudied works by authors we might know. So digging deeper into an individual author's production rather than Uncle Tom's Cabin, something that is less central, um, rather than Melville's novels, maybe Melville's poetry. Um, and we've read some really fascinating articles on non-canonical figures. Mm. So um, rummaging around and seeing what our field actually already has seems to be something that scholars are turning around and looking at. I mean, that, or that's so far. In the articles that we've read, that seems like something that has been very important. Um, Do you think that that, I mean, I guess when I hear, first of all, that that sounds fantastically interesting from your, or I would like to have that vantage point, I guess. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But has that changed the way that you guys think about your own, you know, your own work that you do apart from J19, your own research projects? Your I'll own, tell you, it's been interesting. Uh, I would say, and again, I speak only for myself, that it has not affected at all my sense of my own scholarship, which is probably good. I mean, I think those things should be separate. But what it has affected is my sense of what it means to respond to people's work, because we have just gotten, uh, for the most part, I would say incredibly thoughtful, uh, detailed reports on people's scholarship. And, and it's made me think, wow, I should do a better job of, you know, writing when, pe- when people ask me to review things to really, you know, take the time to to um, respond in a very, very detailed way. I think it's it's so helpful for authors and it just speaks so well of uh what people do in in our field and so that has affected the way i think about myself but um but not the content of of what people are are working on Mm. let me um begin by endorsing what stacy says wholeheartedly the generosity of our readers is extraordinary and we rely on them Completely, Of course, our expertise does not spread um, across the field as, uh, I mean, it couldn't possibly. And the readers had just done fantastic work. Um, so uh, for us already, and we know from Chris and Dana that this is, tr- this is true. So we feel really fortunate, or I feel really fortunate, to be in a field with such generous scholars. Um, so just that is sort of one point to an aside. Um, I should say that I am writing a book about Napoleon. So except for, you know, wanting to make sure that I don't become megalomaniac myself, (laughs) um, my scholarship is kind of off in its own little world. (laughs) Mm. In saying that you want to increase the responsiveness or the ways in which scholars can respond to each other and to increase the, you know, and with that comes an increase of the speed with which scholars can respond to each other in a public forum or in a scholarly forum, do you think that that is going to affect the way the journal interacts with 
you know, our sort of present situation? Well, I mean, another way of getting at the question you're asking is, um, and something that we can do as a field, is to think, is thinking through the relationship between past and present. And, you know, it seems to me that we, it's easy for, to forget how contingent the past actually is. And what I mean by that is not that the past didn't happen, because of course it did, but it didn't have to happen the way that it happened. So at every moment in the past, there was the possibility of a different future. Um, and I think it's important to remember that that's true today now. Um, and so we, we're constantly making different futures. And as a field, we can do that. And as a field, I think we can help people to remember, not only did we not have to end up where we are, but we don't have to end up where we look like we're going. <laughs> Mm. And, you know, one of the interesting things about 19th century, I would say literature in particular, is that people still read it. Um, So it's not just done. It's not just history. It's it's also current. I mean, they were reading 19th century literature in college, certainly. But if you think about the popularity of certain 19th century authors, the way they've been... um, adapted to film and for some reason I keep thinking of Jane Austen although that she's not part of our world <laughs> but, uh, but that kind of thing you know like for a while there was a, a vogue for um, Wharton and then a vogue for, for James um, but they're still these figures are still current in a way and that's one of the things that uh, scholars in our field can do is think about what it means to read 19th century authors in a 21st century context. Moby Dick, for example, Ahab functions as a popular cultural reference. Um, it got dropped. It gets dropped in everywhere. Um, right. The most, the one that comes most immediately to mind is the begin, the first episode of Friday Night Lights, where they're just talking about someone being like mm-hmm. Ahab. So um, that's not um, that's not a a particularly obscure. Um, an obscure, a particularly obscure reference. Sorry, I think I really need more. <laughs> I mean, think about the Chris Luby's republication of Shepherd Lee. Shepherd oh, Lee yeah. has become an incredibly important book for yes. us in the last, let's say, five to eight years, um, and yet no one knew. Very few people, a tiny handful of people knew about it before that. Um, and now I teach Shepard Lee quite regularly to my students. So I think that's another example of the, the ways in which our scholarship can reshape, um, can reshape our senses of what the 19th century looked like, which will helpful, hopefully help us to make better decisions in the present. Right. I don't think that was elegant, but I did swerve it back around to the original question. At the end. And ultimately, that's what's important. My questions. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, you sort of talked about this a little bit, but I'd be interested in hearing you think about the way more broadly that you think that uh, the journal is related to the quote unquote public. Well, we certainly, uh, one of the things that we would like to do um, is to make sure that one of one of the articles comes out from behind the paywall with every mm. issue. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the press is on is on board with that, and that we would use um, 
we would use various social media platforms to disseminate this mm-hmm. to a broader readership. Because we think the work that's published in the journal has been fantastic. And we would love to see it attract a broader readership. And certainly pleasure reading pieces are a way um, to reach beyond an academic audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, because they're just fun to read. And I would say... And so that's part of our uh, one yeah. One thing, Sorry. you know, because you keep talking about, um, bless you, <laughs> uh, of how we're going to shape the journal. Um, and uh, we keep saying, oh, but we're not really. But in a way, you know, the, the two things that we hope we're going to bring to the journal, so I guess this counts as shaping it, are the, the letters, which we already talked about. But also, w- we haven't talked about the... We want to do... Um, forums focusing on people doing American studies in other countries. Uh, so so mm-hmm. we already have plans for a forum from American, Americanist scholars in France and one from Germany, and then perhaps we're working on one uh, for scholars from Japan. And, and to broaden our, you know, the, what counts as our field or what counts as our public, what um, Michael Warner would have said, it's a counter-public, right, because this is tiny it's a tiny public sphere that we have and we can, you know, imagine stretching it out uh, to try and reach a broader audience. But it also, you know, as a, as a counter public, it counts for something in and of itself and to try and, and get that uh, public to expand just enough to contain the really interesting work that's being done in other countries or just to try and figure out why are people in Germany so interested in studying American literature? You know, what do they find interesting about it? What do they study as opposed to what do we study? And and my very uninformed sense right now is that they feel very alienated from the field because they're not in the U.S. Um, you know, they feel like publishing venues aren't as open to them. And, and we just kind of want to get that uh, conversation started because they might have some really cool things to say about what it means to study uh, American in the 19th century American literature in you know in Europe and there are there are also methodological differences in the ways that people from um, different nations or different national traditions approach literature which um, you know and we would really like to see uh, these become available to scholars working in the U.S. national tradition. I mean, we all are studying the same kind of thing, um, and we do it differently, and we're not speaking across these, we're not speaking across these borders, and that seems a little crazy. I guess I want to ask you a really broad question, like how you're feeling about, you're kind of at the edge of the precipice right now. And, you know, you're, I don't, when does the next, when does the, your guys' first issue come out? Um, it goes to press in October, right, Betsy? Yeah, so our first issue is um, spring 2018, and we are putting together the table of contents as we speak. Um, and we need to have everything organized for the press Mm-hmm. Um, at the beginning of October, and that's when copy editing—the whole copy editing process—begins. Um, right. And then it should be out around um, around the time of the conference, the J nineteen. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, the C nineteen conference in March. Mm-hmm. 
So how are you guys feeling right now? I mean, I assume things aren't done, but they must be sort of falling into place. What the what the issue is? It, it look looks like. and, and fantastic, but I can we cannot really take credit for it <laughs> because <laughs> at all because most of the contents of this first issue um, is from uh, Dana and Chris. You know, they they mm-hmm. had so many good essays submitted. We had a little bit of a backlog, and so that first issue is uh, mostly their their choices or at least the things that they saw through the process actually the second issue will be that will be primarily their choices as well although we have um we have a forum in the works for the second issue um on 19th century drama which you know fingers crossed we'll all be we'll be finished on time um and we have some pleasure reading pieces in the works but we are fortunate enough to have inherited a really superlative backlog of essays um which help which is a nice bumper as we get our as we get our feet going in terms of what we're doing what have you guys are you laughing at me for saying bumper (laughs) i love laughing at that actually I think I I have this image of like a sort of bumper car, like sort of bumping you forward, um, yeah, rather than I guess a bumper crop. Um, what have you taken from 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 their approach to editing from the our previous editors? What have you learned from sort of seeing what they've accepted, or just from them? And I assume you've talked to them uh, about editing the journal. Who is that again? Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we are- <laughs> there were prints. <laughs> You know, it's uh, uh, they did such a fantastic. They job. did a fantastic. I mean, job, they yeah. got the journal going from nothing and made it into the highly regarded uh, publication it is today. So we feel like we have really big shoes to not fill but follow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I myself feel really lucky that that's not our job: starting a <laughs> journal app from scratch. Um, but you know, in terms of. Uh, advice they gave us it's um you know i wish this were more uh, heroic an endeavor it is a lot of work <laughs> but it is also just Sorry. a lot of um mediating between writers and, and readers um and it's the readers mm-hmm. who really do make the call and you know already we've had um you know betsy and i have thought oh yeah definitely and then we get reports back that we didn't expect but you know these are the experts in the field so it's not really you know we don't choose essays we we facilitate the choosing of essays by the field um so we really are dependent on people to to send stuff you know that makes the journal great you know if people sent us their best work we would make sure it it got out there i mean we would hope you- and, you know, you hear horror stories um, from people. I mean, actually, I have to admit, I've received these reports myself, which are um, sort of petty or nasty or attacking. And going through the archive of reports that we receive for J19, they just don't exist. People write extraordinarily generous, generative, and helpful reports, um, which makes our job really easy because you can trust them. You can trust what your readers are saying because they're not taking unnecessary pauses. I've also, I have to say, been really impressed by the responses of the writers to the suggestions. They've been like, I mean, again, we're we're early days here, but they've been uniformly like, wow, thank you so much. (laughs) We will, I will, you know, take all of this into account as I think about revising. So um, that's been really nice to see. 
That's I mean, great. we don't, we haven't yet received back revisions on that we, you know, because we are, because early days, we have only just set it out. So perhaps authors will ignore <laughs> our suggestions entirely, and that will be a whole new set of problems. But I'm sure listeners, listening authors will understand when we say, please take the revision cut suggestion seriously. But honestly, if if people want J19 to go in a different direction, if they want more, you know, environmental stuff in it, if they want more political stuff, they have to send that stuff. You know, like we cannot generate it from our end. We are not writing the content. We're mediating the the content. So, you know, that's we're open to anything. Um, you know, send it off. No one wants this to become a Napoleon all the time. That's right. I feel I mean, really confident me. about that. Yeah, no, never. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, do you, do you have anything? I mean, you've spoken in such glowing terms uh, uh, about the submissions you're getting, and I have no doubt that that they are. I mean, having seen the kind of work that has come out so far uh, in the first five issues or first five years, and um, and also at the conferences, um, but is there anything that you wish you were seeing or would like to see, or is there stuff where you're just like, man, I, I know this is out there, but like we're not getting it sent to us? I guess I suppose one of the things I would say, and this doesn't seem to me to be about topic, um, but it just seems to be about sort of how academic labor happens. And that is we get a lot, so what I mean to say is we get a lot of essays from people at particular stages of their careers and not very many at pe at, from people at other stages. You have to be careers. more specific. So we have lots. You mean that that wasn't crystal clear? Well, no, just which stages are you talking about? <laughs> just giving you a hard time. <laughs> um, uh, so we get a lot of essays from people, from PhD students, people working on dissertations, people on the job market, and assistant professors. Mm -hmm. Submissions really taper off after the, after the assistant professor, professor level. Mm -hmm. um, we, I, we get very few submissions from full professors, um, from people, from more senior scholars, and um, not a whole lot from mid-range. You know, that's so, mid -career that's so interesting. I, I had noticed this, what you're saying, but I hadn't really thought about why that is. <laughs> you know, I mean, it could just be, as you're saying, the pressures on younger scholars to produce, produce, produce for their files. Um, but other than that, I, I, I'd be curious why that is, you know, why we're not getting stuff from more senior scholars. Well, certainly, I think one thing is that senior scholars are being sort of that free time is being sucked up with writing volumes for companions. Mm. The Cambridge Companion to this. Not that I. Not there's. Not that there's anything. Yeah, we're both doing that. <laughs> we're both doing it. But it does. It does take away time. But we would love to see essays from people at different stages of their professional lives. I think it's good for the health of a journal um, to have it be lots of different stages, right? you know, lots of different ways of engaging with the profession represented. Um, and I just think it would make for interesting reading as well. Mm -hmm. um, but that would be one, that would, that's, not, that's not related to the content um, in the way I think you asked the question, but it is also related to the content. I, I just in terms of content, I would really like to see ambitious stuff about the field. Like, that would be interesting to me. There's been a lot of uh, talk lately 
in the shadow of this recent election about how we engage in criticism, how we engage with people we disagree with, uh, what is the point of critique at all. I mean, I've been reading tons of stuff about this, and I, I would love someone from our field to take this on and try to think it through in, in broad terms. So not an essay about a particular author or, you know, but just about um, how we engage uh, with our opponents, if they're how we think about opposition and how we think about arguing. I mean, maybe, I don't know, a manifesto of some kind. <laughs> that would just be very interesting to me. Um, I would love to see some of that stuff. We've talked a great deal about temporality um, as a topic in the 19th century, but I would love, and this gets back to our letters conversation from earlier, to see us as part of the part of engaging with what we do, to think about the temporality of what we do, why it matters that sometimes we go slowly, um, and what happens with the pressures to not uh, to mm-hmm. go to not go slowly. What happens to the kinds of rhythms that are associated with scholarship when when we communicate in 140 words, when we're easily interrupted, um, when we're when we're moving and working across different kinds of platforms? What mm-hmm. does that? How does that influence and shape wh- what we argue, how we argue, and why we argue? Um, so. And I think there's I think there's work that is actually beginning to think about this um, a little bit. I've been, I've read a couple of books recently that gesture in these directions, um, but they seem it seems to me that the question of critique is not just um, it, it has it has a wider range. I th- mm-hmm. is my sense, and I, I I think Stacey agrees with me on this um, than it once did. Mm, yes, yes, I do. And yes. how we also balance sort of just what we like with what we do. Right. I right. Mean, you know, sometimes, sometimes the best work isn't necessarily what we like the most personally. Oh, absolutely. So um, I think that is, that's a question too. I would also, I would questions. also, I mean, this is a smaller question to be honest, but I would also like someone to write just something about the very arbitrary divisions that we police between, say, the 19th and the 20th centuries, between British and American. I mean, that that division has never made any sense to me. You know, it's not as though Americans weren't reading tons of British fiction in the 19th century. They, the American fiction is in dialogue with, with English fiction. So why do we insist on having this wall between, and it might be coming from the other side too, between, you know, Victorianists and 19th century Americanists? Um, it's a similar kind of border to the, you know, there, there's a push to do hemispheric stuff, which is fantastic. But um, there was at one point this very, the, an interest in transatlantic and that, I don't know what happened to that. I, I, I assume some people are still doing it, but, uh, you know, we haven't seen, um, I haven't seen a lot of it. I just wanted to ask you guys, if, I mean, if you have any other comments or, or anything else you want to say about, about J19 or the field at large. I have said quite a bit. I don't know if I have any <laughs> anything else. <laughs> what about you, Betsy? Well, I feel like I've said quite a bit too. I guess I would just say that we feel really fortunate to have been given this trust and we're really excited about the challenges. I mean, that sounds pretty lame. So, and I'm not sure I sounded like I meant it. And yet I really <laughs> no, do. You did. You did. 
Well, guys, thank you so much for talking with us today. Um, and we're all looking forward to seeing what you guys do with J19. Send us your stuff. Um, yeah, really. And everybody send Stacy <laughs> and Betsy your stuff. All right. Stacy Margolis and Betsy Ducat. Thanks so Thank much. you so much. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thank you for listening to the C19 podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19podcast or get in touch with us at C19podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.